Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumboots on. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. My name is Megan Hughes. Today, citrus growers left with few options but to dump fruit. Put it in, in figures, you know, a lot of people this year may have only 5 or 10% of their fruit that is you know, at the level that you know, the supermarkets are expecting. But to try and harvest 5 or 10% of your orchard when you've got the other 90, 95% sitting there in the same space, it's, it's uneconomical. Backpackers are returning to the regions to work and to play. I was living in England during the pandemic for the two years and I was saving up for when the world opened again. Um, So living in Australia now, it's just like freedom, absolute freedom. And a project to make Australia's native fruit mainstream. We will try and break down some product that they can actually grow in the farm. So Hopel and Napperinum actually have a farm. So we can go, you can take that product, grow it there, and then we want to bring them back into the food incubator and they actually make their own product out of what they've grown and brand that and see if that's a product they could sell. But first today, Coles has dropped their prices on 150 household items and this is locked in until the end of January 2023. Some of it includes cuts to the price of Stegall's chicken breasts. They've gone down about 40%. Plus, there's also some price cuts on beef scotch fillets and also bullet dairy products. Now, in August, the supermarket giant announced it was cutting the price of over a 1,000 other supermarket items. Now, this is great news for consumers, but how is this affecting the suppliers? Annabelle Johnson is the head of advocacy and policy for the New South Wales Farmers Association, and she explains. Look, it's a, it's a real concern when the retail prices do drop and, and it's making sure that that doesn't impact on the farm gate. And as we saw back in dairy with the dollar a litre milk, the, we were deeply concerned there about the impact that it had on the, the whole supply chain taking value out. And the irrational pricing, I mean, pricing should reflect the production, you know, the energy that goes into producing these goods. So so we are concerned around what this will mean for farmers, the prices that, that they do receive. Um, and it's critical that there's transparency to make sure that there is value being received right throughout the supply chain. Yeah, and so some of the prices that they said will drop are on items such as Steggles, chicken tenders from a cost of $10 all the way down to $6. So what's the sort of impact that will have on that business? So it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, it's, it's really for the, the processes to um, talk about what the impact that it might have on, on their business. What we're concerned about is making sure that enough value flows back to the, the farm gate so that our farmers can run profitable and productive businesses. And that has been a concern of New South Wales farmers in the poultry meat sector because it is a heavily consolidated sector and we do have concerns um, with the the competition in that and the contracts that our our farmers are on and you know we believe that it's an industry that does need to be looked at and we're very passionate about calling for a mandatory um, code of conduct. 
similar to the dairy industry. That was Annabel Johnson, the head of advocacy and policy for the New South Wales Farmers Association. Now, Joel Young from 3J's Butchers in eastern Victoria says he cannot compete with the supermarket prices. But he is hoping that educating shoppers and offering a better quality range, he can keep his customers. People are starting to ask questions, um, you know, where does their food come from and, and where is it sourced? And as a, as a local supplier and as a local um, buyer, um, you know, I feel, I feel like you should be able to provide those answers. And I think we're living in a bit more of a foodie culture now more than ever so people are starting to do those smaller shops in a lot more a lot more different places but you know we're always going to have the supermarkets there they're always going to be sort of trying to price gouge um the the smaller independents but you know i think it i think it does start to stimulate or trigger a conversation when when people say you know what is the difference um compared to yours to the supermarket and we're starting to get a lot more questions now than ever with the rising cost of living and everything, are you feeling that pressure to drop prices for customers? Yes and no. Um, we're, we're definitely starting to see a lot more like your your choice cuts, such as you know lamb and premium steaks and everything like that, start to um, are on the decline. However, people are starting to be, to cook a lot more savvier. Um, people are starting to shop a little bit more smarter so instead of your your weekly shops, we're starting to see a lot more of our regulars through the door, maybe two to three times a week, as opposed to once a week in that big shop. Um, you know, doing that that buy for the for the night, as opposed to that big shop through the week. Um, people's tastes and uh, cuts are sort of starting to become a little bit more varied. That's Victorian butcher Joel Young speaking there to Natasha Shapova. Now, moving on um, from meat in particular and and talking about fresh produce, in particular citrus, orange growers are dumping hundreds of tonnes of fruit on the ground. This is all to do with downgraded quality, rising input costs, in particular fuel and fertiliser, but also a decrease in demand, leaving them with few other options. Griffith and District Citrus Growers Association Chair Vito Mancini says it's the worst season he's seen in around 40 years. Our inputs have gone so far up and when you've got La Nina coupled with it where our quality is so far down, that little bit of fruit that is what the consumer is expecting, it's very hard to harvest that economically. So put it in, in figures, you know, a lot of people this year may have only 5 or 10% of their fruit that is you know, at the level that you know, the supermarkets are expecting. But to try and harvest 5 or 10% of your orchard when you've got the other 90 95% sitting there in the same space, it's, it's uneconomical. So it, it's costing us maybe oh, 40 to 50 cents a kilo to grow it, the whole 100% of the fruit. But when you're only expecting to get that value out of that 5 or 10% to cover that cost, it's just not working. So a lot of growers are either letting their fruit fall on the ground or uh, using what reserves they've got left to employ harvest to um, to just try and drop it on the ground, which is a lot cheaper than trying to harvest into bins and send to a pack house. For me, I've done probably 300 tonne plus. Um, you know, that's not even including the blocks that I just haven't harvested. I've tried, tried getting in there. We've picked maybe 5 or 10% to see if we can make it work in the market and, yeah, I've lost lots of money doing it uh, at the moment. So those, those fruit are sitting on the trees at the moment and now we're getting close to flowering. We want to really get that, that fruit off to release the tree of their burden and work on to next year.
So it's not necessarily about, you know, consumers deciding they don't want to eat as many oranges. It's more about not having as many there quality-wise that fit the specs. Is that right? I do think that um, the way the pricing are, because it's taking so much to get that little bit of fruit out, yeah, the, the value at the supermarket level is probably higher than, um, than usual, but the farmers aren't getting that that pass on. They might be getting a small increase, but not enough to cover their overall cost of growing that 100% of their fruit on their orchard. Uh, yeah, consumers are still eating fruit, they're eating what they can, but I think economically, you know, with the interest rates and so forth, people are tightening their belt buckles just that little bit and, yeah, not going out for the fresh fruit and veg as, as what they did in the past. Griffith and District Citrus Growers Association Chair Vito Mancini. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. So some big news in the cattle industry this week. A new Australia-wide representative body has been formed and this is called Cattle Australia. Now, the difference between it and the body that it's replacing, it's going to allow grassroots producers to become individual members of this national organisation, and that previously had not been possible. Now, to talk about what this actually means, rural reporter Callie Buchanan joins me now. Hello, Callie. Hello, Megan. How are you going? Good. So could you explain to me what exactly the vote was this week? So the vote this week was on a proposed constitution for Cattle Australia. Cattle Australia is going to be the new peak body for grass-fed cattle producers in Australia. And this is essentially a process that was started under the previous federal government. The the previous Agriculture Minister, David Littleproud, wanted the the various cattle groups that represent producers across the country to come together in a single body that could be funded by the federal government and representative of the grass-fed industry. So that process got started. There was a restructure that was happening. And essentially, we're now at the stage where the way that that body is going to operate needs to be decided. And the vote this week basically set out how that would happen and will pave the way for the election of a new board of directors in November. So why the need for this new board? So the cattle industry is vast. It's quite uh, fragmented. There's lots of different issues. And essentially what the federal government was looking for was a group that could represent those views and be what it called more democratic. So in the past, the groups like the Cattle Council of Australia the members of those groups were what, what's called an SFO, a state farming organisation. So if you're a member of Ag Force in Queensland or the New South Wales Farmers Association in New South Wales, those groups would represent you at the cattle council level. What the federal government was looking for was an opportunity for individual members, what they call grassroots cattle producers, to be able to participate in that process. And there's about 45,000 producers in the state. So it... They wanted to democratise the process. They wanted to make it more transparent um, and more efficient. And that was what they set out to do. And, and then also to have that single voice to advocate on behalf of the industry. As I understand, there was a lot of controversy over this in particular in New South Wales. 
Yes, so in New South Wales, the Farmers Association there has criticised the structure of the new group, basically saying that they consider it not to be democratic, that it doesn't have a business case and it has no future funding arrangement. One of the challenges that the cattle industry has faced is that some of these representative groups don't have great budgets. They don't have great uh, spending capacity and financial sustainability has always been an issue. So New South Wales voted uh, no on the constitution, basically saying that the policy framework wasn't clear enough and that the business plan wasn't uh, suitable either. They called the group undemocratic. And also the Pastoralists and Graziers Association of Western Australia voted no. So the vote did pass. So that counted as 75% support from state farm organisations, which was the bare minimum to get across the line. And then there was 92% uh, in support of the new constitution from direct members. So some of those grassroots members who had signed up to be a part of the vote as well. So with this new group, what now? What do they actually have to do to, to be created? So this group was given $500,000 of federal funding to get this process off the ground. The signing off on the constitution is, the, is one of the steps. That constitution can be reviewed over time. So if it is found not to be suitable or not working, that can change. But essentially, the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has instructed the cattle industry to take responsibility for their representation and to make these reforms work. What happens next is there will be an election for board directors. That happens in November. And for the first time, it will mean that you can be elected as a director of the representative peak grass-fed cattle body in Australia without having an affiliation or membership to some of the state farming organisations. So it will be interesting to see uh, exactly who puts their hand up to be on the board, but that will be the next step. From there, Cattle Australia will have its leadership team in place and it will get to work. So the group already exists. This is about how it's going to function. One of the challenges, of course, will be addressing some of those concerns from individual producers and groups like the New South Wales Farmers Association and the Western Australian pastoralists and graziers. And the current head of the Cattle Council of Australia that is guiding this process, Lloyd Hicks, says they will be reaching out to those groups to address some of those concerns through the process as well. Thank you so much for your time, Callie. Anytime, Megan. That was rural reporter Callie Buchanan there. Solar storms and flares and the way they affect the earth will be monitored by a new frontier in Australian weather forecasting. The Bureau of Meteorology's Australian Space Weather Forecasting Centre has just opened in Adelaide and it's going to deliver around-the-clock space weather forecasts, warnings and alerts. Space weather, like weather on earth, is driven by the sun and it can impact technology that rely on satellites. So we're talking everything from GPS systems and telecommunications. Roland Wilson from the Bureau of Meteorology explains exactly what space weather is. So space weather is you know, basically all of the things that the sun throws at us. So radiation, particle events, what we call coronal mass ejections, which are basically large balls of, of plasma or energy that are directed at the Earth. And so very much differs from uh, terrestrial weather. We're not dealing with you know, rain clouds and rains and thunderstorms and those sorts of things. What we're dealing with is the way in which uh, the sun and, and the energy and the particles that 
that come from the sun and, and interact with, with the Earth and the Earth's magnetic field in particular ways, but also we also look at a particular, particular layer of the atmosphere called the ionosphere and radiation from the sun, um, intense radiation events, can interact with the ionosphere. Can you explain how this space weather research will affect farmers' operations? Yeah, so space weather does have, have quite a range of impacts and, and it's being increasingly seen in the agricultural sector, particularly the precision agriculture area. And so, you know, most of your listeners or all of your listeners would be familiar with GPS systems you know, that are used in, in modern agriculture. You know, primarily those are used on, you know, mounted on tractors and you know, are used for a whole range of applications from you know, detailed field mapping, um, precision plowing and planting um, through to you know, fertilisation, the application of, of nutrients across fields. And so the, the way in which you know, space weather potentially impacts those systems is... Yeah, you know, if you think about your GPS or your GNSS um, services that that you would use um, as part of as part of your farming system, um, there's a signal you know that is received by your GPS receiver, and that comes from a satellite in orbit around Earth or a constellation of satellites, and, and often um, there are several satellites being used at any one time for the signal. As that signal passes through the atmosphere of the Earth, and it can, you know, space weather can interfere with that layer of the atmosphere called the ionosphere, and it creates a signal delay essentially. So, when farmers, you know, particularly are using, let's say, their seeders, and and want that high accuracy seeding application across um, across their farm, delays in signalling can potentially cause variability in in the rate of, of application of the seeding, for example. That was Roland Wilson from the Bureau of Meteorology, and he was speaking there to Cassie Huff. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Thank you for listening to Countrywide. My name is Megan Hughes. Now, heading to regional Queensland now, they're back. Backpackers have returned to parts of regional Queensland to work and to play but maybe not in the way you might be used to. It's an encouraging sign for farmers desperate for more workers, as Johanna Marie reports. Foreign accents are again echoing through the dormitories of Bundaberg's Bunk Inn Hostel. English backpacker Daisy Herdman is one of them. I thought I'll come to Australia and do both at the same time, work and travel. And Bundaberg, I need to do my farm work, 88 days of it, in order to get my second year visa. So Bundaberg seems like a convenient place to come and it's lovely. Where were you during the pandemic and, you know, what's life like then compared to now? I was living in England during the pandemic for the two years and I was saving up for when the world opened again. Um, So living in Australia now, it's just like freedom, absolute freedom. What things have you been able to do, like travelling-wise, while you've been here? Have you been to the Great Barrier Reef or...? I've not yet. I've got a lot of things on my list I still need to tick off. I think I arrived in Sydney and fell in love and stayed there for four (laughs) months, so I've got a lot to tick off my list. But I've been to Noosa recently and I lived there for about five weeks and I absolutely loved it there. But still, there's a lot to tick off my list. 
International borders reopened to fully vaccinated working holiday makers in December last year, but they've been slow to travel, especially into regional areas. Bundaberg hostel owner Kyle Myers says that's finally changing. Just sort of over the last month, we've seen a massive increase where people are definitely coming through and our occupancy's gone through the roof, um, sort of back to pre-COVID levels, which is amazing to see. Where are they coming from? Everywhere. Um, all through Europe, um, a few Americans, uh, a few South Americans, um, our UK friends are all here and then yeah obviously a few of the Kiwis are jumping across the ditch as well. It's great, it's great seeing people back in beds, it's great seeing them all interacting together, um, organising their little trips and stuff around the place as well. It's yeah just a totally different dynamic to what the last two and a half years has looked like for sure. Tourism operators in the beachside town of Agnes Water have also experienced an influx of international tourists. Lorenzo Benedetto from Nali Surfing Tours says bus services from Brisbane and Cairns only resumed last month. And since then we've noticed that a lot of backpackers are getting, getting off and on the buses and it's been really good for us. So I'm doing a surf lesson right now. In fact, uh, I've, got, uh, I've got two Switzer German which is, you know, people from Switzerland. I've got, uh, I've got two Germans and one lady from Israel. Wow, yeah. so quite a, quite a variety from everywhere, really. That's right. And uh, yesterday I had uh, three English people, a French person and uh, three Danish guys. Bundaberg Fruit and Vegetable Growers CEO Bree Watson says the agriculture industry is pleased to see them returning. Well, look, we, we definitely have seen um, a slight increase in the number of working holiday makers coming through the region. Um, they're not all ready to work straight away. Some of them are enjoying coming out to Australia and enjoying everything that we have here. Um, but we are hoping that they do take up that paid work sooner rather than later. English backpacker Henry Williams is in Bundaberg completing his farm work for his second year visa before starting his travels. And so far, so good. I'm packing for a lettuce farm. Um, so that involves a lot of washing of the lettuce and stuff and kind of drying it out and making sure it's all in the right quantities or not all in the right sort of type of lettuce all together. So I'm putting it on boxes on the back of lorries and stuff like that. How's the pay been? How's the accommodation been? All that sort of stuff. It's been, it's been good, actually. I've, I've, you, hear, you hear some horror stories of people not getting paid enough, not receiving the hours, um, but I haven't had problems with that. I think the pay's been good for what I've been doing. The accommodation's been brilliant. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's, been, it's been easy, really, to get work and get involved. So. And what's your plan after you finish your um, 88 days of fun? What farm work? I think I'm going to... Head up to Cairns, do a bit of travelling around. I've got a, got some plans in Sydney for the New Year's and Christmas and, and things. So, yeah, just going to enjoy myself for a little bit. And then if I've got more days to do, I'll come back here and crack on with them. That report from Johanna Marie. Many First Nations people have grown up eating a range of native fruits produced on their country, but not many of those fruits make their way onto supermarket shelves. Now, one group of women in far north Queensland have a plan to cultivate them and turn them into products, as Tanya Murphy reports. Hi, my name is Judith Bowen. I'm from Hopewell. I'm a DARPA lady, and we've got three others from Hopewell here. We travelled up to Malanda, on a farm, they showed us these um, plants, most of the plants that we got at home too. We've got Davison plum, 
wild raspberry, lily pilly. And now we're making something out of those three, making a jam. We've got a lot of those plants around and we didn't know how valuable they were, like what we could do with it. Now we're kicking around everything that we can do with everything we have planted up there now. Um, sauce, chili sauce, all kinds of sauce now. we can. This gave us a bit of an idea of what we could do. Hi, my name's Darrell Lyons. I'm a Marawali man from my grandmother's country in southwest Queensland. We're here at the Food Incubator on a three-day program, which has basically been funded by Empower Foundation, which is a not-for-profit, totally aimed at increasing participation of Indigenous people in the native food industry in Australia. So this is off the back of a report that was done a, a few years ago, and it showed there was only 0.2 of a percent of Indigenous women who are involved in the native food industry. And from aunties and all the women involved, in reality, they're the ones who have a lot of knowledge around native food. So we felt there was a really poor statistic. So we've set up this foundation and acquired funding to run programs to actually show um, activities and give entry points to bring a whole heap of women together and girls. Um, we set up five hubs around the country. Um, we have a hub here in Cairns, which is for tropical North Queensland. So we've invited ladies from Hopevale, Yarrabah and Napernam. Uh, and we've taken them up to a native food plantation and farm on the Atherton Tablelands yesterday to show how they can actually do production and, and, and ways to get into that. Then uh, we brought some native food product down from the Tablelands and we've got two days in the food incubator and we're actually showing them and they're making uh, their own jams and chutneys and we're showing them how to brand it and create their own product. So it's really activity-based and really breaking down the steps to show how it is achievable to get into get into the industry. After this program, what would be the future plan for them to use this knowledge going forward? Yeah, the next step is um, we will try and break down some product that they can actually grow in the farm. So Hopevale and Napernum actually have a farm. So we can go, you can take that product, grow it there, and then we want to bring them back into the food incubator and they actually make their own product out of what they've grown and brand that and see if that's a product they could sell. Um, and that could, you know, create a new income stream for the community. And we're really trying to break down the barriers to show there's lots of support from state and local government and federal government to really make it easy. And it's about not um, communities to go and invest in putting a huge plantation in and how they can actually do it really small scale and test and iterate and come up with a recipe or a, and grow a, you know a product and value add it and and test and do multiple or one product so it's about taking small steps to build capability confidence and a product how big do you expect the indigenous food industry to get over the next few years uh, there's a lot of prediction that it can grow into like a, a $20 billion industry with by 2035, and we're really at small scale right now of around $100 million. So there's a huge opportunity, and there's a real demand for a fully owned indigenous supply chain of produced and owned and value-added and sold. Uh, there's retailers around the country that are screaming for this, people around the world. So we're encouraging them to actually look at what other higher-value products they could put in and also stuff that connects to their culture so I think it re really um, provides a driver and an internal motivator to go and produce stuff that their grandparents and, and elders have produced and consumed because the food is really 
high in vitamins and minerals that is actually healthy for everyone so it's such a, a good opportunity but what's important when we look at lemon myrtle and macadamia which are indigenous native foods they're already gone overseas and currently no indigenous or traditional owners are benefiting from any of that so what's really important is how do we get them involved early uh, get them to lock up some of the ip and production and actually um, get the benefit out of what world is seeking and is highly nutritious food. Hi, my name is Kaylin Jackson. I'm um, part of the Stolen Generation, but I'm from Yarraba. I found it quite interesting, the Davidson Plum. We used to just eat it like that, you know, get it and just eat it, put, put sugar on it and eat it, but eating it in the jam was really nice. Did you ever know that they could be a valuable way to make a business? No, I didn't until I came in here and found out that, yeah, there's something that we could be doing because we have it in our own backyard, you know, and if we can market from it, it'd be good for us and our grandchildren, you know, to give them something, pass on our, um, our experience, you know, and our knowledge. I'd love to take something back and I'd love to see something like this grow in Yarraba and we have something that we can call ours, yeah. That's Kaylin Jackson from Final Queensland finishing that report by Tanya Murphy. And that's it for Countrywide. You can hear all of these stories and more at abc.net.au slash rural. My name is Megan Hughes. Goodbye for now.